Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today, Dr. Kara Baxter brings us through our latest Sports Corner series focusing on all things skiing. Dr. Baxter is the owner and lead physical therapist at Motion UT. She's the former head physical therapist for the 2018 Olympic free ski halfpipe team and the former regional director at the Kutcher Clinic for Sports Neurology, with a background rehabilitating athletes from the National Football League, Hockey League, Major League Baseball, U.S. figure skating, as well as U.S. ski and snowboard. She's a phenomenal resource to have on the show. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Kara, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights today. I am so excited to talk to you. I'm really pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. If you could just go into like, what are the general physical demands of the sport that a PT needs to know? Yeah, absolutely. So skiing cover is very broad. There's a lot of disciplines that fall underneath skiing. So you have the classic alpine skiing. And even just within that, there's four different disciplines. So you have the speed discipline, which is downhill and super G. And for the professional athletes competing in those, they're reaching speeds of up to 80 plus miles an hour. And they're, I know, believe it or not. And the runs last roughly two minutes. And then you have the tech side, which is slalom and GS, lower speed, quicker turns. And those runs last roughly around a minute for the pros. My bread and butter when I was with USC and snowboard was on the free ski side. And I worked with the half pipe team. Half pipe, the in a super pipe, there's different size half pipes, but for professionals, people competing on the Grand, P, Grand Prix and World Cup circuits, they're in what's called a super pipe. So the walls of a super pipe are 22 feet tall, and then they're launching themselves 15 to 20 feet off of that to 40 feet up in the air, which obviously comes high risk, high reward there. Uh, we saw a lot of overuse injuries and traumatic injuries with that sport. And then we go under that same free skiing umbrella. We have slope style. So slope style involves big jumps. It also involves rails where athletes are jumping up onto a rail and sliding and doing some quick rotation, which can lead to trauma too. If an athlete lands directly on these metal, metal rails and features. And then as these jumps, they're, they're going almost as high, if not higher than that, the half pipe skiers. And it seems like every year they're pushing how many rotations they're doing in the air. So again, very high risk, high reward. And then we have moguls. So moguls is the bumps. Their runs last between 20 to 30 seconds. There's two jumps in a moguls run. We call them top air and bottom air. In between the moguls is the the true classic mogul skiing and involves very rapid, repetitive hip rotation and knee flexion. And the torso should stay relatively quiet with good technique there. Aerials is, is similar to slope style where they're launching themselves off these huge takeoffs and jumping. They don't jump off access though, and they also don't grab their ski. So slope style and half pipe getting the grab, that grass on the ski is really big in terms of scoring higher points. Aerials, they do not grab and they do not spin off access. And then we have ski jumping in Nordic. So Nordic is cross-country skiing. We have classic and skate skiing. 
big focus there is endurance. And then on the ski jumping side, we really want to emphasize stability because the whole goal is them for, for them to be as motionless in the air as possible. We're also really concerned about concentric rate of force development for those athletes because timing pushing off of the jump is a huge factor as to how far they're going to travel. Kara, with so many different events that these skiers are going through, do you see a wide range of injuries or are there really like a top two or three that you tend to see quite commonly? Across the board, it's pretty high risk. You either have the really high speeds or you're really high off the ground. You also have a long lever arm attached to your foot. So ACL injuries are very common and we, it's very rare that we just see ACL. We almost always see some kind of concomitant injury with that. A lot of posterior lateral corner injuries, meniscus tears, osteochondral defects, um, multi-ligament knee injuries. So it, it tends to be a little bit more complicated on the rehab side. In season, we see a lot of back pain. It, it seems like every discipline has their own back pain. There's GS back, there's mogul back, there's aerial <laughs> back, but just kind of overuse and trying to attenuate some of these forces that they're seeing on snow and it, traveling up the chain and finding the weakest link. So we battle quite a bit of that in season. Tib-fib fractures are common. A lot of that is traumatic falls right where, and the fracture will happen right where the boot hit. Concussions. Shoulder dislocations, clavicle fractures, uh, and then Achilles ruptures too are fairly common, particularly in in the alpine world. Oh, I did not expect Achilles ruptures because I guess I assumed the boot would help. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah, you can still have um, a very rapid like overflexion of the boot unexpectedly, and huh. that Achilles tendon can go. Okay, so this is definitely the most traumatic of all of the sports corners that we've experienced. There's a lot of fractures involved because we're getting 40 feet in the air. Oh yeah, my gosh. right. And and <laughs> rotating. And then you have the weather variables, too, for these athletes. If it's windy, if it's flat light, it's amazing what each individual athlete takes on every day and what they're able to accomplish. Can you go a little bit more into the back pain? I know that you said like every kind of specialty has their own like form of back pain. So how do you typically treat that? And what do you look for in preventing that? Preventing is very hard because in season, they're in season and they're training a lot. They're competing a lot. They're traveling on uncomfortable airplanes. They're jet lagged. There's disruptions in their training schedules. And this is even on, on smaller circuits. Amateur athletes are traveling far distances to get to different mountains for the different competitive events. So if you have a small muscular tweak in your lumbar spine and then you sit in the car for three hours to drive to the next resort, very likely that you're going to get some aggravation. But it brings up a bigger concept of we have the the traumatic, you know, post-operative injuries that we're rehabbing that I can dive into. And then we have kind of the bumps and bruises, mid-season injuries. How can I get my athlete to the next event safely and successfully and minimize their pain? So obviously, when you see this person, you want to screen for any red flags. And once those are all cleared, you're looking at I mean, really the biggest bang for your buck. What can I do today in my clinic to help this athlete so they can get back on snow successfully tomorrow? We do quite a bit of mobility work, especially with the hips. If you watch some video of downhill skiers and you really slow down their turns, 
you'll see this shin box position that we call of their hips, where it creates this almost S pattern of their hip. So I picture someone seated and they have their left leg in front of them with their femur perpendicular and their tibia parallel to their torso and their right leg behind them with their femur in line with their torso and their tibia perpendicular to it. So it's almost creating this letter S. That's a very similar position to the turn that you need, to, or the position in a turn that you need to be in on snow. And a lot of times in season, we see mobility deficits and the hips creep up. And of course, that's going to translate up the chain to the lumbar spine. So we do a ton of variations on this shin box positioning, isometric holds, leans, diaphragmatic breathing, trunk rotations, adding some resistance in there to get some core stability. And that's really our best bet for in season. And it's directly applicable to the positions these alpine racers are going to be in on snow. You mentioned back pain across a wide series of different events. Do you tend to see that it is more or less the same similar type of back pain presentation between all these events or are they actually relatively uh, unique to, to, to what these athletes are doing in these separate events? I think it mostly has to do with the fact that they're trying to decelerate with their erector spinae muscles and they don't have the underlying hamstring strength. I will say there is a slight difference in alpine racers. Usually the the hardest part for them to get back to is getting deep in those turns because of the hip mobility that they need. And they often lack when their back pain is present versus a mogul skier or half pipe skier. They're going to have a harder time getting back to the higher impact stuff that they need to get back to in their sport. So my tests and measures when I'm trying to decide if someone's appropriate to take one run or a full training session the next day differs a little bit depending on the disciplines from that from that perspective. So what do rehab professionals need to understand when rehabbing these athletes, given their their unique and high level demands? Regarding the overuse injuries, these are the injuries that we see. We'll see them in summertime. The, the tricky part about summertime is that these athletes are doing a ton of, or should be doing a lot of dry land uh, strength and conditioning. And they'll do that for, you know, four, six weeks. And then they'll have a camp or they'll travel to somewhere in North America, Mount Hood and be on a glacier. And all of a sudden they haven't been skiing. And for seven days straight, they're skiing as hard as they can because camps are expensive. It's one of their only times to be on snow over the course of several months. So they really push it. So on the front end, I do a lot of education on sleep hygiene, the importance of adjusting to a time zone well, the importance of hydration and fueling on hill, illness management, you know, washing your hands on the plane and all that good stuff. Because the last thing we want is someone to go into a training block already depleted because they're fighting some kind of illness. And then during the camp, you know, a, a lot of these skiing athletes, they're they're high risk sports and people do them because they love them. And it's it's a huge part of their identity. And you have to meet them where they're at. They're not going to respond well to me if if I just say, hey, you have X going on. You cannot ski tomorrow because they're probably going to do it anyway. <laughs> With the overuse injuries, I do a lot of education on here's what could happen if you train tomorrow. Here's what could happen if you take a rest day tomorrow. Is there some kind of middle ground? We work a lot with the high performance staff. I found working at USP and Snowboard, they have an awesome model where that high performance is part of sports med and they're very well integrated together. So what we're doing in PT directly mimics what they're going to be doing on the high performance side when they start loading more rather than having that be entirely separate. 
And so the high performance and the rehab team is separate from the coaching staff, which is very powerful because then we can come together and have our key messaging to the athlete and to the coach and explain why or why not someone is advised not to train or to train the following day, what their cadence should look like during a camp schedule, what their cadence should look like during comp season. So communication with these overuse injuries is absolutely huge. Education with the athlete is absolutely huge and understanding where the athlete's coming from and how your message is going to resonate with them and how to meet them where they're at is key to to successful management of those injuries. Sounds like you are, whatever they're presenting with, you're just trying to get them through camp because it's a very important timeline for them. And so as, as much as you can actually do like strengthening wise, as much as you can do mobility wise to give them like during that time period. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I ultimately, my job is to keep an athlete safe. So I would never put them in an unsafe situation, but I also recognize the demands of their sport and how important getting to the next comp is. So if I can find a way that does that safely, I'll do it. And I just communicate the the risks and rewards. And if they decide that they want to kind of power through the pain presentation they currently have, then we're doing a lot of manual therapy for pain modulation. We'll do a lot of neurocognitive rehab on the road, making sure they're not too visually dependent. Because once you have that injury, we see the increase on visual reliance. Visual processing is the slowest to, uh, or visual input is the slowest to process out of the three sensory systems. And we see athletes post-injury have a heavier visual reliance. So that's setting themselves up for an additional injury, whether it's a traumatic injury or just these overuse injuries that we're doing interventions on the road and at home that's decreasing their visual reliance and creating more scenarios that mimic their actual demands of their sport, having them watch themselves in the mirror and doing three sets of 10 of a very controlled single leg squat doesn't really translate well to moving 80 miles an hour downhill, like getting creative on the cognitive side, as well as the the musculoskeletal side. Yeah. And then when you have the time, right, it's just, it's, it's, there's everything about their sport is eccentric. They are, they have to control so many eccentric. Oh, tell me more. Yes. There's so much eccentric force, but one of the key metrics that we care about is concentric rate of force development, because if someone is in a compromised position, they need that concentric power to be able to pull themselves up out of that position, or we'll see, we'll see that ego. Any other key things to keep in mind when rehabbing these athletes when in regard to their traumatic injuries? Sometimes you can get really creative and get them back to their sport sooner than maybe the athlete initially thought. You've got to chat with their overseeing MD and surgeon. But for instance, if you have a wrist or hand injury and they're they're casted really well, there's no reason you can't have a cast molded to their pole shape and then get them back on snow with the ability to hold a pole and that cast is going to protect them pretty well. So we do that quite a bit. On the other side is when they're definitely not getting back to snow for a long period of time and we're dealing with a a really significant injury in rehab. I address day one, the the mental health component of that. And we bring on sports psych and uh, general psychology early on because they just got their whole identity stripped away. You know, exercise is often a huge stress outlet to you. And all of a sudden, they don't have that. They don't have their peer support. And I found just anecdotally that that really strengthens our uh, therapeutic alliance. And and I get really solid buy-in from them because they feel like, it, me as the provider, I'm really caring about the overall person and I'm not just treating the, the musculoskeletal side of the injury. 
I love that creativity. Just like, that sounds like, just like you need to have a team, team work mentality with your physician to be able to make that work for that athlete. I mean, ACLs are so common for skiing and I would love to hear your thoughts and approaches to returning to snow and what kind of things you look for. Cause that's pretty unique. And it's not something we hear about there's a, we already have on this podcast alone, there's multiple episodes on returning to run, but what about returning to ski? What do you look for? We rely heavily on dual force plate testing. We personally use Vald. Uh, there's some other great plates out there. The particular metrics we're looking at with return to snow, and we do baseline testing too, just kind of as a tangent here. In season, our goal is to maintain strength, but because of the demands these athletes are seeing, it's very common to see power slowly decline over the season. So we like to capture baseline uh, preseason and then postseason too and see how power has been impacted. But after an injury, we're looking at rate of force development, which is basically how quickly can we go from a message to the brain to a contraction of the muscle to getting the bones to move. We do a squat jump starting from isometric 90 degrees flexion. We do the squat jump. We do the 80-20 test, which is a variety of the squat jump that's looking more at endurance. And then we do a counter movement jump. So the squat jump, you start at 90 degrees knee flexion, and then they're jumping up as high as they possibly can. And we're looking at phase one and phase two concentric impulse, which is basically symmetry in the initiation of the jump and symmetry at uh, the takeoff of the jump. And then we do the 80-20 test, which is very similar to the squat jump test, except it's 20 jumps every four seconds for a total of 80 seconds. And we're just looking at how fatigue plays into the symmetry at that phase one and phase two concentric impulse. And then from there, we go to the counter movement jump and we cue them to drop fast, jump high. So they start from tall standing position. They drop down into a squat as fast as they can and they jump as high as they can. And we're looking at concentric mean force and examining for asymmetries there. And then force at zero velocity, which is the crossover between eccentric and concentric. We are really concerned about that concentric rate of force development because that's what's needed to get out of a compromised position. And we've also found that that's the slowest part to come back and rehab. We're very purposeful with our progression of plyos, knowing that we ultimately have to get back that eccentric and concentric rate of force development. So we'll start with the athletes. We'll have them move slow and soft at first. That's our cue for their landings. And then we'll have them move fast and soft. And then we'll have them move slow and stiff. And then finally, we're working towards fast and stiff. The stiffness seems to be a big aggravating factor for joint health. So we're never starting someone with a hard and stiff landing. We start them slow and soft and gradually progress up to that hard and stiff. But that's ultimately what we want to see someone able to do before we're getting them back on snow. And then the actual back on snow process is I I always communicate this with our athletes because sometimes it's like, cool, I'm back on snow, I'm done with rehab. But the back on snow process is an extension of the rehab process. I'm very clear about that. Just because you have snow under your feet doesn't mean you're done rehab. And there's a tremendous amount of coordination between coaching staff and the rehab to make sure that their form on snow is how we want it to be. And we're keeping them safe so that when they get in the bumps, get in the half pipe, get in the gates, they're safe. And we're not putting them at at increased risk of of re-injury or having another injury out there. So again, communication across the board, and it doesn't matter if it's a professional skier or an, or an amateur one, if they're coming back from a big injury like that, they've really got to have eyes on them in clinic and on snow. Yeah. So with somebody who is 
who maybe doesn't have their force plates in their clinic. Are you, is there any, are there any other things that you look for that would indicate that they're ready? So they need to be able to produce that rate of force development. So training with that, I guess there's apps for that now. Or like, I mean, like, right. So jump testing is really important for like returning to sport for on a field sport or um, QI is important for returning to run. Right. So is there anything else like that, that you check out? The literature behind it in skiing and snowboarding is not great. And the retail rates are so high that we're constantly looking for other ways to evaluate someone's readiness to return to snow because our injury rates, at least on the professional side, can be up to 50% uh, re-injury rates. So we're missing something in this return to sport testing. We we were doing triple hop testing. We were looking at quad hamstring ratio. And not to say that that all that, you know, anterior reach, Y balance, all that stuff, not to say that you shouldn't pay attention to that at all. It's certainly something worth taking into consideration, but that isn't and can't be the be all end all because we were having people pass those tests with flying colors and they were still getting re-injured. So the, the most exciting data that's coming out there, particularly in the skiing and snowboarding world, is this rate of force development data. So I do think, I mean, I know force plates are are an investment. I, I own a private practice, but they're not breaking the bank. And if you're seeing a lot of these athletes in your clinic, it's absolutely worth it to have this data. I think that's a great place to leave it. Kara, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. It's been wonderful to learn from you. Thanks for having me and uh, come out to Park City anytime. I'll teach you how to ski. All right, perfect. I will be on the bunny slope. Kara, thank you one last time for joining us. And as always, to each and every one of our listeners, thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.